the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Petka. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Danny, what the hell is going on? Well, people may notice that there's a little bit of a role reversal here today because I'm usually the one asking you what the hell is going on. Anyway, you actually have something exciting going on, uh, which is that last week you went in and interviewed Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, just you and he sitting uh, in the Oval Office, and you broke some pretty exciting news that we've heard about, but that the president for the first time confirmed. Tell us. So I asked the president about news reports that he had carried out in 2018, a cyber attack on Russia to defend the 2018 presidential election. And he confirmed it on the record, said he did it, said he was proud of it, and uh, said it was part of a broader uh, strategy of being tough with Russia, which we'll get into in a minute. But this is a big, big news item that I think it's, it's, I think it's the biggest underreported story of the Trump presidency, because we spent two years of the Mueller investigation, right? Investigating the conspiracy theory that Donald Trump and his campaign conspired with Russia to steal the 2016 election. And it turned out that wasn't true. And then the story was, but Donald Trump doesn't take Russian electoral interference seriously. And it turns out that, you know, when he was in office and there was an election going on in 2018 and the Russians tried to start their interference again and do the same things they had done in 2016, Barack Obama knew it was happening when he was in office, but he didn't use America's cyber capabilities to shut down the Internet Research Agency. Donald Trump did. He took a uh, he launched a cyber attack that shut down the Internet Research Agency, took them offline and kept them offline during the course of the 2018 vote, a vote, by the way, which put Democrats in charge of the House. So he was defending an election in which his party lost control of one of the chambers of Congress. Ellen Nakashima, my colleague at The Post, reported this in 2019, and it got a yawn broadly from Washington, D.C., because, well, it didn't really fit the narrative. We don't want to give Donald Trump credit for doing something that Barack Obama didn't do, especially when our whole narrative is that Trump is a a toady of Vladimir Putin. And so I confirmed it with the president, and he said it, in fact, happened. So I think this is huge news that the mainstream media wants to ignore because it doesn't fit their narrative about Donald Trump. Sorry. I mean, look, I I think that a lot of us have come to understand that the whole narrative about, you know, Russia trying to control American politics and putting their puppet Donald Trump in office is ridiculous. That doesn't take away from Donald Trump's defects. The, The problem here is that this was the sole focus of the first two years of his presidency by the Democrats. And they've kind of let it go by the wayside. You know, now it is that he's the bad coronavirus president or he's the what else has he done that's bad? I don't know. I, I can't everything, even keep track. Everything. Everything. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's the challenge. But what's interesting to me is that he went after the Russians Did it stop the Russians, though? It slowed them down for a day or two, but they're back interfering in elections from the United States to Europe to Asia to wherever they can, aren't they? 
Well, he did protect the 2018 vote. I mean, he did stop them from interfering and it was part of a broader strategy that the administration had. It involved a presidential uh, national security directive that gave our cyber warriors uh, new authorities to combat this. It was legislation that was passed by Congress that gave new authorities for offensive cyber operations. This wasn't just a impulsive, okay, I'm going to pull out my MacBook and launch a uh, cyber attack on Russia because I feel like it this morning. It was a part of a broader strategy that was done largely in the covert space and they didn't take a lot of credit for it, but the intelligence committee sure knew that it was happening and, and they were continued to attack Donald Trump in 2018. And by the way, this was all happening during the Mueller probe and they weren't taking credit for it publicly, even though Robert Mueller was in the process of, uh, of pursuing the conspiracy theory about Trump-Russia collusion. This was a great talking point for the administration to push back on that and they didn't because they took the threat seriously when it happened on their watch. Okay. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, one second. So I want to talk to you about 2020 and about the conspiracy theories as well. But that seems weird to me. I also want to point out that you brought this up with the president. He didn't bring it up with you. But he did it. That's the point, is that making my point, which is they actually took this threat seriously and did something. And even when it was in their political interests to talk about it, they really didn't uh, do it. Do you think they didn't talk about it because they were being reticent and because they felt like it was not appropriate? Or do you feel like they didn't talk about it because Donald Trump doesn't like talking about what a bad guy Vladimir Putin is? So number one, uh, they didn't talk about it because it was a covert operation, which they wanted to preserve deniability of. And uh, there's a value to that. So wait, wait. So he told you about it in the, in the Oval Office because and he that's decided a secure to, he space. Decided when asked. To, well, first of all, I think it's shameful statement that I'm the first journalist who actually asked him about it. You know, how many press opportunities have they had since 2018 and 2019 when Ellen Nakajima reported this and it was in the public domain? He's had probably 50, 100 press conferences since then or opportunities to talk about it and no one ever asked him. I was the first one to ask. And when I asked, he said, yeah, I did it. I'm proud of it. So, you know, shame on the media for not reporting this. Shame on the media for not asking him about it. But again, it's because it doesn't fit the narrative because this is a good news story for the Trump administration. This is Donald Trump, commander in chief, who we just had a whole John Bolton book explaining why he's incompetent and incapable of exercising the powers of commander in chief. Well, this is a story where the president of the United States led the intelligence community to come up with a strategy to protect the elections. And then when, when the Russians were repeating their behavior of 2016, he pulled the trigger and launched a cyber attack on them that shut them down. No one wants to report that because that, puts Donald Trump in a good light and says, hmm, this, there was actually a rational process. They came up with tools. They came up with a strategy. They came up with red lines. Russia crossed them. He executed. Why would we want to report that and let the American people know that Donald Trump is actually doing, a, at least in this area, doing a pretty good job as commander in chief? Now, I will say that obviously this had been out there, as you rightly say, there was a sort of dereliction of duty on the part of journalists who didn't use the opportunity to ask about it. But the journalists who covered this from the sort of technological side were pretty nasty about how lame an attack this was and how it didn't amount to a, you know, <laughs> a hill of beans, if I can coin a phrase. And there was a piece that said, I love the headline, U.S. hackers strike on Russian trolls sends a message but what kind? And the implication of the, of the piece that was covering this was, eh, you know, kind of lame. Yeah, well, it wasn't lame. And anybody who follows national security and understands it, and we can talk to our guest about that in a moment, it was pretty serious. 
And what it was, was a demonstration effect. They said they sent a message to Russia that if you do this, we have the capability to shut down your internet access and to take you offline. And if you mess with us, we can do it again. So it was a shot across the bow. But again, Barack Obama didn't do this. I mean, he was briefed on the, on the Russian election interference and he took no action whatsoever. And as the president said in my interview with him, that's because he thought Hillary was going to win and he didn't want to mess things up. And it turned out she didn't win. But, you know, he took no action. So it's kind of hypocritical for people to say Donald Trump doesn't take Russian electoral interference seriously when Barack Obama did absolutely zero to combat it when it was happening in 2016. But when Donald Trump was president, he did it. It's an act of war to launch a cyber attack on a foreign country. And he did it. So, you know, I think the president deserves credit when he does the right thing. My view of the pro-presidency is that I give him credit when he does the right thing. And when he does the wrong thing, I call him out for it. And that doesn't seem to be a widely held position in Washington today. Well, uh, no, as you and I know, having watched too much of the press lately, that that's not a widely held view in Washington, and that's not going to get any better in an election year. We have somebody wonderful, one of your colleagues uh, at the Washington Post, who was nice enough to be game to join us to talk about this. And she's a terrific reporter. Her piece was, uh, you know, Trump confirmed cyber attack on Russian trolls to deter them during 2018 midterms. You know, Ellen Nakashima, she's been at the Post for 25 years. She's won uh, a Pulitzer Prize for public service. She's won a Gerald Loeb Award. She was actually a technology reporter and a privacy reporter before she started covering national security. And, and she covered Russian efforts to influence the outcome of the 2016 election. So she's basically the perfect person to do this story. And she's a great get for us. Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, good. Well, we've we've broken some news <laughs> between us uh, recently. You reported yeah. uh, back in uh, February of 2019 that the president launched a cyber attack on Russia's Internet Research Agency, which is the troll farm that interfered in the 2016 elections. And then uh, this week, uh, I got the president to confirm it on the record. So good uh, collaboration between news and opinions this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is one of the most, what I consider to be one of the biggest news items that's been so underreported or undernoted. Can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what is the Internet Research Agency and what happened with this cyber attack? Sure. The Internet Research Agency is a sort of a company, loosely called a company of internet trolls or people who sat in a building, it was in St. Petersburg, I don't know where it is now, and they were posing as Americans to try to post up on social media during the 2016 election and then again during the midterms to try to just you know, exploit the social divisions in the country, in the U.S., and sow a little discord, similar to what they did in 2016. And this troll factory, as it's called is uh, run or financed, owned by an oligarch close to President Vladimir Putin. His name is Yevgeny Prigozhin. And Prigozhin is a wealthy man who also has done other shady things like finance the army of mercenaries that has been doing um, some malign activities around the world in Syria and uh, Libya and Africa and elsewhere. So this troll factory the U.S. government, the military in particular, was concerned that it would try to disrupt the 2018 midterms 
the way they interfered in the 2016 presidential election. And so they, they came up with an operation, a cyber operation that they undertook on the day of the midterms in November of 2018, and it ran for a few days after that, where they basically, using their operators, disrupted the access that these trolls in, in Russia had to the internet to prevent them from going online and trying to cause a little confusion around voting, perhaps, in our American midterms. That's basically, in a nutshell, what they did. And they continued it for a few days after the actual vote to ensure that these trolls wouldn't try to disrupt the actual vote tallying and vote counting. So, Ellen, I mean, this is a great story. And as a voter, I'm delighted that we are trying to take it to the Russians. One of the things that you reported last year was that one of the authorities that was used by Cyber Command was a new presidential order that actually came out in August. You know, we are, we're used to talking about, you know, our SEAL teams and, and lots of other kinetic behavior. Can you just sort of put this in the broader context for everybody? Yes, right. So in fact, this operation against the IRAs, we'll call them for short, was the first real sort of offensive cyber attack undertaken under this new authority, which is called in the, sort of the jargon, Na- National Security Presidential Memo, or NSPM 13, that, as you noted, had been signed in uh, August of 2018. And it, what it did was basically streamline and rationalize the process by which government agencies, and in particular, the, the Pentagon, could undertake cyber operations. Cyber operations that are not considered armed attack or use of force operations, but fall slightly below that to to avoid being too escalatory. And um, this operation went through that process. And as a result of having a faster uh, approval process to do this, they were able to get it done and approved by the election. And there was also another key authority that they used. And it was something that Congress had given the Pentagon in 2016. 17 in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, and there was a provision in that law that redefined such offensive actions that fall below the use of force as traditional military activity, TMA, which basically meant that they could be undertaken without having to go all the way up the chain of command uh, for high presidential sign-off. Although in this case, as Mark got the president to confirm on the record, the president did give sign-off. So you reported that this was part of a broader government effort to safeguard the 2018 election. Can you tell me a little bit more about that broader strategy and what that entailed? So they, the government around the Beltway is trying to make sure these elections come off safely, and that includes not just what the military does overseas, but what the Department of Homeland Security does inside the United States, working with the states and local jurisdictions to make sure that their registration systems, their voting systems are secure. To be sure, you know, the elections are a state and local responsibility, not a federal responsibility per se, but the feds want to work in partnership with the states and locals to make sure that the elections go off smoothly. And then the uh, NSA, the National Security Agency, worked closely with Cyber Command. In fact, they are headquartered on the same campus at Fort Meade in Maryland. 
And NSA was gathering a lot of the intel, the intelligence overseas that helped inform the cyber command operation. And uh, then you've also got the Justice Department, the FBI, working on various aspects of election security, whether it's looking for actions being taken on U.S. soil by foreign agents, or whether it's trying to work with the social media companies to to give them tips about what they're hearing overseas. So all of so, that was part of this bigger, you know, effort to try to safeguard the election. And it's also what they're trying to do now for 2020. I mean, it, it, it's reassuring in a lot of ways, obviously. Um, what are the tools that the Russians use? You mentioned these troll farms. There's Macedonia, there's Montenegro. There's a whole series of, of efforts that are pretty geographically diversified that they're using. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about that? Because obviously we're reacting to what they're doing. Right. And and as you know, they're not doing this just against the United States. And they've been intervening in their own region and the near abroad much more actively and and consistently over the years, going back to at least, you know, 2007 in Estonia especially using the internet or, or cyber means, uh, whether it's to disrupt an election authority on election night, or just try to put in some disinformation and propaganda to rile up emotions on both sides of an issue or party. And they're doing that. They, they did that in Ukraine. They did that in Estonia and in Georgia. And, you know, we here are coming to it a little late because we weren't really paying attention to what the Russians were doing in Eastern Europe and Western Europe, frankly, too. But once we saw it in 2016, now all of a sudden we we think, oh boy, right, big deal. And as we learned from Robert Mueller's indictments, uh, the Russians also sent agents over here to the U.S. in 2016 to kind of pose as Americans and, and try to gin up rallies and get people to pose for instance, as I think in one case, Hillary Clinton in a cage, in a float, <laughs> in some parade, just to stoke the already sort of inflamed passions on various sides of hot button social issues here, whether it's race, gun rights, abortion. Right. I mean, their job is adding fuel to the flames. Uh, that, that seems exactly. That seems right. And they're good at it. It's obviously the tradecraft is fascinating. But of course, the man bites dog part of this is that the conventional narrative is that Donald Trump is really pretty comfortable with what the Russians are up to. Were you surprised when you got confirmation of this that he authorized it, given that he's always poo-pooed the hoax? Yeah, no, I don't, you know, I think it's actually reflective of Donald Trump and his handling of the of Russian of Russia issues, right? He doesn't want to publicly come out and accuse Putin of seeking to meddle or interfere in, in an election. He still says publicly, right? He doesn't he's kind of had doubts about whether or not they they really did interfere in twenty sixteen or why would they both all sides do it. He's he's a little equivocal on, on that. But as we've seen, he will, when uh, I guess a case is made to him by his advisors, will sign off on operations like this one that they, they will protect the election or, you know, eventually coming around to signing the order that expelled some 60 Russian spies and diplomats from the U.S. 
after the Skripal poisoning in the UK, sending sanctions, orders on Russia uh, over election interference and approving lethal arms sales to, to Ukraine in their battle against Russia. So this administration has undertaken some pretty strong aggressive steps against Russia and Russian aggression. It's just that the president himself doesn't use his bully pulpit, I think, to, you know, to, to socialize the message or the issue that you know, Russia is an adversary and they do uh, want to try to interfere in our elections and we won't you know, stand for it. You kind of want a president to say that loudly and clearly, and that's what I think has been missing from the White House. Does that uh, make sense? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's, but on this particular operation, this seems to be right. such a good news story for the administration politically. Like they're accused of not taking Russian election interference seriously for all the reasons you cited that the president sort of cast doubt on whether it happened. He even did that in my interview, actually, if you read the, the, what he said. <laughs> he said, if it happened, we don't know for sure Obama was told it was happening. You know, he even did it then right. after talking about uh, launching a cyber attack against Russia for doing it. Very That's good. part of his MO, too. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> He'll do that in the same, same interview. Right? Exactly. But it's a good news story for the administration, and yet they didn't want to tell it. They, they don't they yeah. don't want it. And when I reported mm-hmm. that the president confirmed it, they actually asked me to pull it back when they realized that he had said it. Even though it's good politically, what about the operation and the national security risk makes you think that they've been so hesitant to talk about it? This is something that goes back to maybe the founding of the National Security Agency. There's just a reflexive security around these issues, on these cyber issues. I think even if President Trump were, you know, proud of it and wanted to say so publicly, they still might have wanted to just keep it quiet because for them, you know, any operation that isn't public, clandestine here or covert, they just reflexively want to keep that secret or not have it publicly acknowledged. Maybe there's a little bit of a sense of, well, you know, we, don't, we just want to preserve some ambiguity to avoid escalation. But I mean, on the other hand, it was very clear. It was them. I mean, the Russians, after, you know, after stories, they realized it. So at that point, the, the ambiguity is really, I think, taken away. But it's, it's this, as I said, I guess this reflexive secrecy that they cling to on all things cyber. And it's, it's kind of maddening and frustrating. They have gotten better about it over the years. The administration has. It used to be maybe all the way through the last year or so of the Obama administration, maybe last two years. It was difficult to, for them to even say China and cyber you know, attack or hack in the same sentence or Russia and, and hack. They just, there were diplomatic sensitivities too, I should say. And so it became a big deal when in the Obama administration, Obama publicly blamed North Korea for the Sony hack or, you know, eventually Russia for interfering in the election. But for a long time, the government has just not wanted to point fingers publicly at another state, another government. That's gradually changed somewhat. So, I hope it continues, and I, I hope they opt for more transparency in these operations. One of the interesting things about the attack, and maybe this might be part of it, is that they went after the Internet Research Agency, which is sort of quasi-governmental, has arm's length from the mm-hmm. government. They didn't go after the GRU, the Russian military intelligence. They didn't launch, a, as I understand it, an attack on, on them. 
One, why do you think they held back? Do you think that they were trying to use a demonstration effect to show, look what we can do to you and we could do this to the GRU? Or, uh, or why, do you, why do you think they held back and do you think it was an effective strategy? Yeah, I, I think there was in part a demonstration effect and also maybe they hadn't detected any, because I, I, I have to believe that if they had detected in advance that the GRU was preparing to try to disrupt, you know, some voter tabulation or voter registration systems on election day, they would definitely have acted. They wouldn't have refrained. Hmm. I'm sure of that. So I can only deduce from that that they didn't see any such intelligence um, on that score and so didn't want to take the slightly more escalatory and risky move of disrupting the GRU. And one of the things that's interesting is you see a lot of people, now admittedly people who are not necessarily disposed towards liking this administration, but nonetheless kind of, you know, poo-pooing what happened. You know, yeah. Wired had a piece that, you know, basically said, oh, come on, you know, this is some sort of symbolic garbage. And, you know, if you really wanted to let them know, you would have cut off the entire Russian internet, yada, yada, yada. And there are a number of stories like that. Now you're talking about them, them walking that fine line, but some people mm-hmm. are suggesting that they really weren't walking a fine line. They were just doing something that was sort of a garbagey, a little bit of a slap. What do you think? Yeah, I talked to some Cybercom folks after you know, the story became public, and they were sort of dismissive of comments that said, oh, you know, that this was just a pinprick that didn't have any long-term deterrent effect because they were saying, you know, sometimes you're not out there to just to, to do a, a long, they were saying this very, you know, privately, they see that, that, you know, this is an operation that was supposed to be reversible, right? It's not like you were going to deny the trolls internet access forever. And that's partly what made it below the use of force. It was really to try to make sure that they could not access internet on election day and, you know, the next three or so days afterwards, you know, and period full stop. So that's, that's what they wanted to do. And if it had the effect of also saying, you know, see what we can do to you, don't try it again in the future, so much the better. But they didn't want to blow it up out of proportion to make it like the end all and be all operation. Right. So, I mean, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, again, you talk about this, this calibration and, and, you know, in testimony, John Michelsoni has talked about this, the same challenge, which is trying to, to calibrate, to not overreact, which would you know, cause, cause problems for us, but to still let them know that we have capabilities. But if we compare what we've done to the Russians to, for example, what's going on in Iran right now, you know, again, no confirmation, but lots of speculation that there are an ongoing series of cyber attacks at Iranian nuclear facilities that are causing explosions, that are causing all sorts of trouble. Now, again, it's a bit of apples and oranges. On the other hand, you know, that's an unmistakable message that the Iranians are getting. When we talk about the 2018 congressional, okay, we talk about 2016, okay, but if we look forward to 2020, do we want mm-hmm. the Russians to get a stronger message? And what do you think? I mean, having talked to so many people, do you think we have the capacity, the intent, the, the, the will? Good questions on um, capacity, intent, and will. I think because 
first of all, there are separate elements to 2020. There's the actual physical voting machine issue, which is to some degree out of the hands of the federal government and, and up to what's going on in all of the states and counties. And by you know, all accounts, what I'm hearing is their security is better. Uh, in fact, things went off okay in 2018 and in, in the primaries so far. So there's that. Then there's the social media bucket of, of issues, which is one the one that was, you know, most, I guess we didn't even see that until after the election in 2016. And as you noted earlier, the Russians were just sort of pouring fuel on the fire. They weren't creating the conflagration. They were just stoking it. And but that's what they're doing with social media. And how do you get a handle on that? Is, is that often requires the social media companies to to decide, you know, take stronger policies or, gov- or the Congress to regulate. And there's a whole debate around that and where do you draw the line. And then there's these physical, you know, issues with either the Russians hacking political party and dumping uh, emails or hacking our election machines and messing with the votes. So on that last, in that last bucket, I think, I mean, people so far say, you know, they haven't seen any real risk there in 2020, but it's July, maybe, you know, we'll have to see what happens in in October uh, and, and on election day. But there's a lot more attention and focus being paid to the overall Russian election threat issues than there was in 2016. So sometimes I wonder if there's a, a risk of overhyping it to the point where you see any little intrusion by Russia gets pumped up out of out of proportion to you know a, a big deal when it's really just run of the mill espionage. Last question from me, Ellen. You know, Danny mentioned the cyber attacks on Iran that have uh, not been confirmed officially, but we've we've seen. Though I think earlier on, after they did confirm that there were some cyber attacks on Iran, but it seems like Trump is using these offensive cyber capabilities more vigorously than any of his predecessors did. And you know, it's interesting because both he and Barack Obama campaigned on a promise to end George Bush's wars and to not start new wars. And Obama really embraced the drone war as a way to take on threats to America without massive military deployments. And it seems in a way like, and tell me if you think this is fair and your reporting confirms this, that Trump seems to be using cyber in a similar fashion, that he's using it as a proxy for other offensive operations. And it's this new weapon that's really come online. The the, the drones only came online at the very end of the Bush administration and Obama embraced them. Now it seems like certain cyber capabilities we have that didn't exist under Obama have come online under Trump and he is using them very vigorously. Do you think that's a fair comparison? He's definitely using these cyber capabilities and authorities more vigorously than Obama did. And I think the one difference is that cyber is more of an enabling technology. With a drone, you you drop a fire missile, level a village, kill people. With cyber, in fact, I don't think we've seen any cyber strike yet by the U.S. that has resulted in deaths. And they think they'd be very you know, careful on that part, because then you are going now into the use of force level. And in, in the offensive strike that Trump uh, authorized against Iran what, last year in June was calibrated to not be considered, you know, use of force. Whereas remember, he pulled back authorizing the missile strike that would have mm-hmm. caused death. So I think there's that difference between the use of cyber and the use of, say, drones. 
But I do think you're absolutely right that President Trump is much more comfortable with the use of offensive cyber and just using those authorities more vigorously. He's freed up the military to be more aggressive there. And it's not just in cyber. I mean, he's done that with counterterrorism as well. My exit question. I'm gonna I'm gonna take away Mark's moment here because I can see him smiling when you said that, that in fact he, he he has made more robust use, which is of course Mark's theory, which is his. And that is the, so so my question is really about the elections. You're immersed in this. When you think, forget Donald Trump, forget whatever, when you think about elections and the the changing arc of capabilities on the cyber side that malign actors have. And uh, we're talking about the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans, the Chinese, and probably others that I can't even think of. How worried should we be, not just about the social media that you talk about, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit of every election, and we've seen that in Europe, but how worried are you about the ability to actually interfere in our electoral processes in, you know, in the technology that gets us votes? You know, are, do you think that we're going to have another hanging Chad sort of cyber nightmare yeah. 2020, yeah, 2022, 2024? Well, God forbid, but, but cyber you're, yeah. you're <laughs> immersed in this. How worried are you? Yeah, I feel like we have to be worried that something unexpected. What I worry about is what we aren't prepared for, because we're trying now, racing to make sure our machines, voting machines are secure and can't be messed with. Um, they found out in some uh, primary and was it Iowa that their their app was malfunctioning. And that wasn't even something that had to do with a hack or anything. That was just shoddy technology. So there are all sorts of ways in which the software can, can go wrong in an election. What we don't know is what Russia or maybe China or Iran are trying to come up with as the black swan type of scenario here that, that they can use to just disrupt and, and throw a monkey wrench in the works. I feel like we've come a long way and, and that, in fact, in 2016, there really weren't any votes altered. I know some people say that's not, you know, 100% established, but I think from all the evidence we've seen, that there hasn't been any evidence that any actual votes were changed. And I don't think that happened in 2018. So, you know, fingers crossed it won't in 2020. What's harder to, I think, to understand is the way in which influence operations actually affect behavior, whether they can induce people to stay home from voting, you know, don't, don't, not go to the polls, or change a vote, or that's the part that is really difficult to, to measure. And my hunch is, though, that in that respect, it's domestic actors that are far more influential than anything foreign actors are doing, you know, in trying to interfere in an election. And that it's just it's the for, what the foreign actors do is amplify or take advantage of the chaos that we ourselves create because of the fissures in our society. You're well said. Your reporting on this has been terrific, and it was uh, fun collaborating with you last week. So thank you for, uh, for your great reporting and for joining us today. Thanks a ton, Alan. Thank you. So, Mark, here's the $64,000 question. And just as an aside, who even knows anymore what a $64,000 question is? It was a game Not show. A money, like... <laughs> <laughs> that, was like a fortune. that was like a billion dollars when that game show was on. <laughs> Somewhat, somewhat small change question for you. So 2020 elections, 
One of the assertions that I think underpins a lot of the allegations about Donald Trump is that he's soft on Russia. Vladimir Putin wants him to be president. But of course, you know, we have detailed, even I, the great naysayer, have detailed that this is the, an administration that has been extraordinarily tough on Russia, more sanctions, more leaning on them, more leaning on the Europeans to keep up sanctions, more individuals and banks and companies in Russia sanctioned than under any previous administration. Now And now Donald Trump confirms that, in fact, they're also trying to stop the Russians from interfering in our elections. So why, why would Vladimir Putin want Donald Trump to remain president? That is a fascinating question, and I don't necessarily think he does. What the president said to me is, if he does, he's crazy. <laughs> he didn't use those exact words, but you know, he basically laid out a litany of things in the interview that he did that were against Russia. Many of those that you mentioned, like sanctions and other things, but he, uh, there's also the fact that in Syria, you know, Prigozhin, this, this oligarch who's running uh, mercenaries as well in Syria, uh, the U.S. forces killed a lot of those mercenaries in a, in a battle uh, in Syria as well. So he's actually not only used cyber weapons against Russia, he's actually used kinetic weapons against Russian troops uh, and killed a lot of them. And then he also says a number of things that, you know, not traditionally seen as being tough on Russia, but for example, making the United States the number one oil producer in the world. That's not good for Russia, he pointed out. Uh, there's a number of things as well. Uh, our military buildup and the fact that he's in invested a lot of money in our military to make up for the damage that was done during, uh, during the Obama administration. That's not good for Russia. So he laid out a litany of things that he has done that should make Vladimir Putin not very happy. I think, quite frankly, the idea that Putin wants Trump in office is kind of, kind of a myth at this point. May have thought in 2016 because Trump's. This is the thing about Trump. Trump's actions against Russia. I mean, I think he's absolutely right when he says, "I'm the toughest president on Russia ever." Ronald Reagan brought down the Soviet Union, so that's hard to beat. But beside that, no president's ever been tougher on Russia. But his rhetoric in 2016 was, "Oh yeah, I can get along with Vladimir Putin. We're going to have good relations with Russia." He he was talking about, uh, you know, they took out the plank in the Republican platform on Ukraine. There there was a number of signals that Putin listened to that probably made him think Donald Trump would be a lot better. Plus, he hated Hillary Clinton. Hillary's not on the ballot this time around. And Vladimir Putin, if he wanted to put Donald Trump in the White House, he certainly miscalculated. And I don't know if there, it's an interesting question, I don't know the answer to, is what are they going to do in 2020? Putting aside the question of whether they can because of the counter operations that we have in place and the capabilities that we've demonstrated, whether they can interfere, why would they want to? Well, I mean, that is the interesting question. So the piece that I wrote actually said, why would Vladimir Putin not want Bernie Sanders to win the election? Um, and it's a similar question. I guess there's one front where I can see that Russia would find the Donald congenial, and that is on the question of, of his doubts about NATO. You know, that's really an area in which I think he and Putin probably see eye to eye. But again, Trump said to you, and I don't know whether you reported this in your two pieces, and I commend everybody to read the two pieces that Mark wrote that were the result of his interview with the president. There, we'll link them both in the podcast. But did he say to you something about how he's done more to try to get more money for NATO than anybody else? He did, he didn't did. he? He did say that. In fact, he denies that he is opposed to NATO. He expect I said I, he explicitly said I support NATO to me, and he said if any one of the litany of things that he's done that should make Putin angry 
is that he got the uh, NATO allies to actually kick in more money. That the uh, we now have, I think, eight other countries that are paying meeting their two percent uh, of GDP requirement that they had committed to. Uh, he says that he's gotten them to kick in 140 billion dollars more, and over three years, that's going to be 400 billion dollars more in defense spending. And he says, I would not have been able, he told me, I would not have been able to get them to do that if I hadn't intimated that I would leave NATO, um, that that was the only way I got them to do it. But he said, but I don't want to leave NATO, but I want them to pay their fair share. And quite frankly, I think that's 100% correct. If this is going to be a real alliance that is capable, it can't be just, uh, you know, the, the fig leaf for American power in the world. They have to actually invest money and spend money. I wrote speeches for George W. Bush. I wrote speeches for Donald Rumsfeld at NATO summits saying you have to meet your 2% commitment. They never did it. Donald Trump got them to do it. And that's not good for Putin either. Right. Well, he hasn't gotten everybody to do not it. Germans are a lot more. Right. Well, you know, again, our allies have been deadbeats on, on this front. They need to invest more in defense. It's a very interesting question. It, it's sort of Donald Trump, the narrative versus Donald Trump, the policymaker. And those are two very different stories, but it would be nice to see him take a much harder verbal line against bad guys. It really would. What he said was, and he didn't say this quite directly, but he said, I've managed to do all these things and maintain a strong personal relationship with Putin. And that is paying off because we're negotiating a nuclear agreement now. He talked about how they had violated the INF treaty, how they violated their previous accords and how we pulled out of that but that he's trying now to negotiate an agreement on nuclear weapons with Putin. And so I think the way he sees it is there's no value in terms of the policy of boasting about the tough actions he's taking. He boasts about them in, re in response to people saying you're, you're Putin's puppet, but he seems to think in the, in the words of Teddy Roosevelt, who now we uh, is, we're gonna pull down his statues too, but say, speak softly and carry a big stick. In this case, he's not speaking softly, he's speaking loudly about how he loves Vladimir Putin as a person, but he's, he's carried a big stick. And, you know, it's just like much of the Trump presidency put Russia policy aside. It is often a much better presidency with the mute button on. <laughs> if I told you before, you know, before the election, Danny, we're going to have a Republican president who's going to beat Hillary Clinton. He's going to impose sanctions on Russia. He's going to launch a cyber attack on the Internet Research Agency. He's going to get the NATO allies to spend more money. He's going to increase our defense budget. He's going to make us the number one country in the world in energy and all of these things. You would have said Ronald Reagan came back to life. But then you hear the words and it's, it's like, oh, no, sometimes. Yeah, not, not sometimes, almost all times. And that, that, of course, is a concern. Still, you know, you've given all of us a reason to hope that beneath the bombast, beneath the absolutely foolish statements, is, is somebody who is willing to do what it takes when given wise counsel about, uh, about it. John Bolton's book, Notwithstanding. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to talking to you some more uh, about the president. And I hope one day we'll be able to get him on the podcast because that'll be really fun. He said, so newsflash for our listeners, uh, he doesn't do interviews for print and audio at the same time. And so I asked him whether we could use the interview on the podcast and he said no, but that he would come on the podcast uh, and do an interview with us separately. So he, we have a commitment from the president to, uh, to come on the show. So uh, get ready, Danny. <laughs> Uh, well, that's why you all should subscribe, because that's going to be some fun. Hey, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> <laughs> it will be. Thanks again for being there. Hope everybody's taking care.
And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.